Go. Sniper arrow on the guard. It strikes true. The guard drops. I move to the doorway. Detect traps. None detected. I enter. Left flank. Right. One hobgoblin facing east. Backstab. Double damage. Critical hit. He's dead. Footsteps behind the door to the north. I notch two arrows. I climb the walls to get above the door. Five goblins enter from the north. I fire. Both arrows hit. Cleave. You kill one and wound another. I drop on the last one and grapple. You got hold of them. For Crouton. With his dying breath, he utters, The Dark Lord will kill you all. Wait, these things can talk? I want two taken alive. I want to try something. The Fire and Water Podcast Network presents Let's Roll, the show where we discuss various role-playing games with guests and fellow tabletop gamers. I'm Siskoid, and today I'm bringing back our inaugural episode's Shalif, and we're adding Fred Melanson to the mix to talk about a role-playing miniseries we played using GURPS Black Ops and GURPS Warehouse 23 and a bit of other GURPSes. But we did call it Warehouse 23. Fred and Shalif, Agents Orange and Tesla, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Great to be back. (laughs) (laughs) You don't sound sure. This is a game that we played for six sessions, six whole sessions, but it feels a bit longer and we'll explain why. In the summer of 2008. So set back your chronometers and uh, I mean, I try to remember what is now 13 years, well, 12 and a half years ago. Good context here. Obama had yet to be president once. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yes. And he did feature as a candidate in the campaign. Back when we thought that Bush was a bad president. (laughs) So what is GURPS Black Ops? I think it has a terrible name, personally. It came from the fact that GURPS had source books called Special Ops and Covert Ops, and it seemed to be in that line. But what it really is, is... Men in Black is what yeah. it is. To me, it was I was going to be playing it as Men in Black meets Torchwood meets John Woo. And I was a big, I still am a big fan of Hong Kong action cinema. And this was one of the results, I guess, <laughs> at the time. I really wanted to combine those different things. And it really worked. Well, I mean, the premise was that you were all working for The Company, which is actually from the source book, but at Warehouse 23, which is a different source book. It's a source book of just basically in Indiana Jones at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, that big warehouse where all the stuff seems to be. That's where you were working and you were sort of trying to secure it's kind of Area 51, Warehouse 2023 kind of stuff, where you would secure artifacts, fight monsters. We'd go out and find supernatural artifacts and bring them to Warehouse 23. So I guess you yeah, can throw I, I, in some kind of X-Files in there as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think for me, at least when we ended up playing or when it was pitched to me, uh, and Mike mentioned it in his kind of inspirations but torchwood was probably a big thing for me at the time so (laughs) that was pretty much just how i saw it in my mind yeah we'd use a lot of gray aliens i mean there was like an overall story arc in there we use gray aliens so that makes it more x-files in that sense yeah and i have to say 2008 this is before warehouse 13 which was a show that you know basically was the same premise and I remember that we had a joke where, like, like the people at Area 51 would go, like, Warehouse 23 is a myth. So, like, the lower the number, the higher the top secret thing is. Okay. 
And I remember when Warehouse 13 came out, I was like, okay, so these guys are way more secret than Warehouse 23. That's why we never referenced it. <laughs> yeah, because we don't. Yeah, because it. we're all aware. Where, Warehouse 13, that's a myth. That's a myth. That's, <laughs> that, it's made up. It, it stops at Warehouse 23. Area 51 guys just don't know this yet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it was a weird kind of synchronicity where, you know, this show turned up after, I mean, obviously, it's not like that surprising a a premise yeah but i guess my impetus was twofold at least uh beyond you know my deep interest in hong kong action flicks was probably part of it but i wanted to make use of a lot of gurps books i have like a giant collection as i've spoken of before on other episodes and there was a way to link several of them here and we'll talk about that as well later uh, but at the same time, it's probably because I, at the time, I was a big fan of Pyramid Magazine, which was like the uh, mm-hmm. Steve Jackson Games in-house online magazine. And um, through that and uh, other websites by, for example, S. John Ross, who is the co-author of GURPS Black Ops and of many GURPS books, in fact, he had a thing on his website which is now you have to go through the Wayback Machine to find it, but uh, we did, I did. And so uh, I'll include a link to that on uh, on the Fire and Water Podcast Network website, just if people are interested in, in doing something like that for GURPS. But he had rules for cinematic play, which was mostly advantages that... Plot armor. Yeah, <laughs> if you want to make... If you want to make your own uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger action <laughs> star, those are the advantages. Well, we were reading through it earlier, and like that's it feels like the guys who wrote John Wick just went through that page and tried to make a character with every single one of those things. <laughs> he is the now the quintessential badass action hero. Yeah. Uh, so I, I mean, there was that, yeah. and Pyramid Magazine had a, an article by uh, Chad Undergolfer, which was about cinematic points, which was a way to use, I guess, like hero points, use points to create cinematic effects, whether that's walking out of explosions or, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff you could do in an action movie. That was in here. So the point is, GURPS. As we discussed on episode two, when we were talking about GURPS Old West, is a very gritty, (laughs) realistic game in terms of damage (laughs) and the kind of action stuff you can do. Yeah, like if you get shot with a gun in GURPS, your character's going to die. You're bleeding out. It's it's realistic. They also have a subset of cinematic rules, you know, because they're trying to simulate different kinds of play. So cinematic rules kind of help you go in that direction it's stuff like stormtrooper stuff where you know the stormtroopers always miss and you know one shot and they're dead that kind of stuff but to make really truly powerful heroes you kind of had to break the system a little bit and this is why we're talking about gurps black ops in a sense because the question will be can you do you know high-powered this isn't even superheroes you know high-powered characters unbelievably powerful compared to a normal gurps character and still still keep the stakes real interesting and yeah yeah by breaking the game we made the game unbroken
the character generation, let's talk about that. The character generation is, I thought it was like 500 points to the normal 100. 750, It's 750 right? according to the character sheets. So a yeah. normal hero, a normal person is built on like 25 points. A normal hero in GURPS is built on 100 points. And we went with, as GURPS Black Ops recommended, 750 points. To a character. That is nuts. And I remember character generation going on for two to three hours, all of us at a table going, what else can I buy? I've yeah. bought everything. Yeah, that's it. also my memory. So yeah. it helped that we had like these new advantages that we, that you know, could dump points in. Yeah, like the 75 points for truly badass. Which you did not take. I didn't take. I just, I went only with... You know, badass, yeah. not truly badass. Merely badass. Merely badass at 50 points. Let's talk about your characters. What did you pick, really, to, to make in this game? There were four players, uh, and uh, you are half of that. So Agent Orange. Who was Agent Orange, Fred? Um, Agent Orange was the the merc, like the gun guy, the hitman. He was the, the man's man, like the stereotypical jock with guns combat monster uh, yeah. combat mod yeah he gave women's names to his guns i kind of based him off of uh jane from firefly a bit okay like where he's like he cares about guns and he's gruff and he doesn't really care about orders but he'll follow them if it's good for him and um like he's a mix of jane from firefly and leon from the professional Okay. I mean, what about you, uh, Agent Tesla? That was like the science guy? Yeah, that was uh, essentially back to Torchwood. Clearly, I loved the show at the time. It was essentially Owen from uh, Torchwood. So your science, med, engineer, math, whatever it is, psychologist, you name it, he does it. He's super smart. <laughs> 750 points means he still was good at combat. Obviously not Mr. Loves His Guns over there. Yeah, yeah. everyone was. Everybody, everybody had at least, <laughs> you know. And that's that's the interesting thing, right, is everyone was, by GURPS standard, amazing at everything. But everyone on the team had that one thing where they just edged out everyone else a bit. So I was super IQ guy, super smart, could deduce anything from any puzzle. But every other guy on the team probably could solve a Rubik's Cubes in three seconds <laughs> and figure out new mathematical formulas on their spare time, right? Like, it's just... It was, no, it was I, think, really... I, think, I think Orange, I didn't spend much in the mental capacities. I was purely, like, there to be guns and, like, you're going to be scared of me. I was Arnold Schwarzenegger. I could crawl on cars. Uh, I could handle any... I had the guns skill just guns with an exclamation point so i could use any gun in the game yeah my my points went totally towards gunfighting i don't think i had anything i'll disagree with you because really well in role-playing terms yes that's what you did but okay you had to dump a lot of points and probably black ops tells you well agents are built kind of like this and your your iq is nevertheless 14 out of normally 18 <laughs> And like, <laughs> okay, average is ten. You know, yeah, average okay. is ten, and fourteen is already like top of your class. So, yeah, yeah. It's just then you didn't go for. And I mean, if I'm gonna go and, and look at some of your skills, for example, 
uh, yeah, you went, you know, you still have anthropology and you still have electronics and you still, you know, so. Right. But that, yeah. Okay. But you still, a lot of these, you've got so much when you've got yeah. so many points that some of these things you're not going to particularly use, especially if there's another mm-hmm. specialist in the group. Yeah. So like the other guys, we had uh, Etienne, who we mentioned before, always plays the noble hero. Well, he played the noble hero here, and <laughs> uh, but he was <laughs> well, he was the martial artist of the bunch, and that was another kind of tester for us. Was how do martial arts work in GURPS? And the way they work is that you can buy fighting. Like everybody's got, <laughs> I like the skill names: skull splitting and what's the other one. You know, so you've got your normal fighting. You can buy styles, and in those styles, that unlocks maneuvers. And in cinematic play, which was what we were doing, you can also get cinematic moves. So Etienne, for example, had he was Agent Dice. I wish there was had been a, a, an Agent Slice, but anyway, <laughs> Agent Dice <laughs> had some of the stuff that was purely cinematic. So his Shaolin Kung Fu specialty, you know, style had. Stuff like, well, it says here like Palm Strike, but he didn't have the level yet. He wasn't yet up to that level, except it's on the sheet anyway. He's got like a whopper, like eight pages of character sheets because of his maneuvers. You know, if you use the kick instead of just fighting, it would create more interest. It's more interesting than say, I hit him, I hit him, I hit him every time. You could choose things that change your position or your relative dynamic or give a little more damage here. But with the cinematic ones, you could do, you know, high wire moves. You could do wusha moves, magic moves. Uh, and there were also, you know, certain advantages, badass advantages that a martial artist could take, like, you know, drop your weapon. I put myself in a stance. I say, come on, you drop your weapon and you want to fight me hand to hand. This is like a Steven Seagal move kind of or a Jacqueline Van Damme move where they're going to just, okay, yeah, I want to fight hand to hand when it would be easier to just shoot the guy. Etienne had that background to him. So that was his specialty. And then we had Sly who played Agent, uh, what was his name? (laughs) The rookie? Jet. Agent Jet. Jet. And Agent Jet, every show like this, there's always a rookie to learn the ropes and tell tell Mm -hmm. you, you know, everybody else is an expert. So he, um, he had... On his sheet, something called Destiny. And the only explanation given was classified. And I guess Sly did not know what I was planning for him. No. So he was getting like these weird flashbacks. And eventually we find out that he's got alien DNA. And it's all going to resolve itself in the big finale. But the way we actually started the game was with the death of a different agent. Agent Spider was an NPC. Mm -hmm. And then the kid comes in. To replace him. And he was more of a, if we were talking about specialties, he was more of like the gadgeteer. His specialty was... Annoying you. I mean, his specialty was being reckless, I think. Okay. Like he was, he, he played it as a high octane thrill seeker, jumping in a hot tub with grenades type thing, if I remember correctly. What about you, Shalif? Any memories of those two players? I definitely remember the rookie more than uh, Agent Dice. I mean, I've got memories of playing with them of course i remember the humans <laughs> behind the player uh or behind the i remember player. at some point etienne rolled some dice i don't know 
<laughs> Other than the archetypes, though, not much. It's been 12 years. The biggest thing I remember from uh, Agent Jet is he had a really cool use of cinematic points. Okay. Uh, and he was really good at using those to kind of set a mood, set a tone, and really transform the game from a more run-of-the-mill RPG to a really cinematic, episodic type situation. Between the like adopting the cinematic atmosphere and rules, the cinematic advantages that were provided by S. John Ross on his website, uh, we also added cinematic points. I allowed players to use skills with exclamation points which meant that you know there were like these uber skills blades meant you were good with anything that had a blade on it mm-hmm. you know driving with a, a exclamation point meant you could use any vehicle so it made you more of a james bond character in yeah. that sense plus the martial arts that agent agent dice used was just another way to for him to to spend more points and to get to that 750 but even when you look at the book at grips black ops they give you kind of uh uh, archetypes. They don't often do that in GURPS. They let you design anything you want, but they sort of made okay, this is what the like uh, a tech guy looks like. This is what a, a security guy looks like. Whatever. Uh, and there's still like these full pages of stats and skills. Like, it's incredible. So I'd say that, like, in that final analysis, yes, you you can play the game with 750 points, but I think exactly like Shalif was saying, it's kind of tough to, like, what do you buy? What what are you adding to your character? And then, do you remember you have all this stuff, you know, during the game? It's a lot to, it's a, it's a little bit like uh, like your first experience or you start out and you're already a 20th level wizard and you've got all of these spells and it's hard for a player to just, like, remember that they have a certain something that will be useful in any given situation without it slowing down the game. You know, when players are just rummaging through their sheets and looking, you know, there's a slowdown when the player is forced to reference everything, yeah. We didn't acquire these skills over years of playing. We started the game and we had them right away. So, like, instead of having a few skills to look through to try to figure out what to do, uh, I think you mentioned that DICE had like eight dice. pages of skills. Yeah, so it takes a while. And beyond that, I don't know about the other players, but it was my first time ever using GURPS uh, as a system, period. So to be thrown into it with no limits <laughs> in mm. a system where I never knew what the limits were was uh, an interesting adjustment, but in some ways may have been easier than to be thrown into it with all of the limits. We talked about the game mechanics of GURPS in episode two. So I'm not going to go over all of that. And uh, I, I think we the scaling is what we've discussed here. But beyond all of that, we did something in this that I don't think I've ever done in other games or never done before. And that's the diceless opening. And that's the reason I think I feel like the campaign went on longer than it did is because you sort of had a mini episode in the front of the big episode, that diceless opening was its own. It was uh, you would see like the end of a of a mission. It's a little bit like uh, Indiana Jones, where Raiders of the Lost Ark. Again, I'm going to mention because it, it's got a Warehouse 23 connection. Mm-hmm. You know that mission that we see at the beginning of Raiders in the jungle. That feels like there's a whole other adventure that we just saw the end of, and then there's the bit with the 
Ark of the Covenant. Every, yeah. yeah, every Indiana Jones is like that. So that's what we did with this. But what I mean by diceless is that we just, like, this was a way to make the characters the most badass possible by just letting them narrate the story. We didn't let silly things like rules get in the way. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it was essentially, we start with the climax of a previous unplayed episode, and yeah. then theme song, move on to this week's episode right. type thing. And this week's episode is going to have dice and you can fail, but the, the diceless opening allow you to do things that were outrageous and then not have them fail. You know, so I remember maybe some robot Yeti, which is probably a Doctor Who thing, but there was the um, water skiing while attached to Nessie. That, that yeah. was one. And obviously Agent Spider, the uh, the poor sap, got killed. <laughs> in such a diceless situation. You have any me- one of those. Do you have any memories of this whole concept? Of Agent Spider or of Diceless Openings? Diceless Openings. Oh. Is that a no? I'm racking my brain here because I have fond memories of Agent Spider. Really? Oh. How could you? I remember his theme song, but I don't remember the character No, at I'm not all. talking about Agent Spider at all. I'm talking about Diceless Openings. Yeah, but if we um, focus on Agent Spider... No, don't. <laughs> or if we don't, whatever. <laughs> I mean, his theme song says, get rid of. Yeah. It, it was a theme song for someone who was going to die. Spider. He is our hero. Spider. Rid of Spider. Step on Spider. Spider. We love you, Spider. Oh. I I have I have some memories of some stuff, but it might not be the diceless openings because my badass trait also allowed me to do some diceless stuff. I could just kill off any nameless henchman. Um, if anyone was weaker than I was, which was a lot of people because 750 points, uh, they were scared of me and I could just like show up behind someone like Batman. From my notes, there was a ski do chase, wasn't there? There may have been. Yes. There's a, there's a werewolf one. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like where I dumped some fun ideas that I didn't want to develop as full games. <laughs> And I mean, these took, what, maybe 15 minutes? Yeah, maybe. Maybe? Yeah. Mm. So they're just good blurbs to set the tone for the week. It's a cold open, like, for any TV show or, like, a James Bond film or anything of that, right? They they always kind of start like that. Sometimes there would be, like, an artifact or something that's related to the next one. Like, okay, you found the bomb, now you gotta go after the bomb maker or something like that. So that was a really cool... To hot action this week <laughs> on Warehouse 23. We only did like six episodes yeah. of this thing, and two of them were really two-parters. So there's maybe like four stories <laughs> in all. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the first one had Stonehenge, and that's all I remember. And then I, I made a mistake where I repurposed a Call of Cthulhu adventure, probably the only adventure that I poached from something. And uh, it just like it was like two parts. And the first part was so investigation based that it did not, even though there were some action bits, it just didn't respect what we were trying to do. Of course, part two, you're basically fighting Cthulhu monsters. I feel like that episode would have been the episode for Tesla to shine. But since, like, Sharif, no offense, you were so green at that point. You didn't really know how to 
do all the things that you could do yet. That's somewhere everyone starts when they're playing RPGs, right? You were kind of Thanks fresh a lot, off that. I've been waiting 12 years to dissect this episode, and you jump in before I have a chance to apologize and atone for my sins. Were you actually going to do that? Don't apologize, just don't do it again. No, I, I was, because I remember I remember that episode, actually, um, because I, I had what was the worst use of a cinematic point in history, <laughs> Okay. where we were all stumped. Essentially, no one on the team knew what the heck to do, and I do believe that that episode was specifically for the science character to shine. But to, to Fred's point, you know, first time on GURPS, uh, first time using a very intellectual heavy character, I guess. I don't know. I just wasn't sure where to go. So I used uh, the I know a guy cinematic point. But beyond using the point, I had no idea what I wanted to do with it. So we ended up behind a subway talking to one of the cashiers in the hopes that it would lead to something. But it just kind of fizzled out. (laughs) Man. Uh. Yeah, because I (laughs) well, I remember this is one of these instances where the characters where the players really are stumped. And it's uh, suddenly it's just like we're, we're just spinning wheels here and not, you know, it's not advancing. Game Master's kind of forced to maybe give a a bigger clue. And it's almost like a Deus Ex Machina at that point where you feel like it makes the players feel like they failed, even though yeah. it's going to proceed, you know. This was also pretty early in the campaign, right? Was this the second yeah, one? Yeah, this was episode two. This was episode two. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like I feel like beyond that, we we hadn't maybe... We didn't get, have a good grasp of who our characters were and what they could do and what it meant to have 750 points. And like you said earlier that I have an IQ of 14 and that I had like anthropology. IQ score of 14. An IQ score of 14. <laughs> you know, like these, th- these are things that I don't remember and I don't think that I knew at the time even that you know i could have maybe used in game to get some stuff going well you you can all take responsibility if you like but i will die on this hill that i made that that was my mistake in the sense that this was supposed to be a high octane action campaign i think your mistake is that you made it the second game after a very very high octane first game that might be your mistake had we played three seasons of warehouse 23 and when we know the game and we know the mechanics and we know the characters, if you throw in that session after a while, we would have knocked it out of the park. Like a change of pace once we've more established yeah. what you know what we're actually doing. What the pace is. Yeah, yeah. I agree. But the, I mean, the second part is like no Call of Cthulhu scenario ever, where you know you're you're like jumping on Migos. And which are like these big fly things that drive you insane. You know, you're basically having dogfights over giant mushroom patches, you know, shooting Shubnigarath or whatever in the face or whatever. And and one of the eyeballs. I don't know what it was. What if your characters, your action characters, what if Arnold Schwarzenegger were fighting cthulhu spawn you know basically yeah to me like the end product was i was driving to that but it it took two sessions to get there so that's the problem Mm -hmm. where there was like a slow session in the middle of all that but i think it paid off eventually but the payoff the payoff yeah yeah, it did and that's that's why i'm saying like it wasn't necessarily a a mistake to have that thing in in a high octane game maybe have it that early when we have an established what the game is yet maybe that was the mistake 
but not having the Call of Cthulhu game in a Men in Black cinematic game scenario. Because I think it fit, like, the thematically, it fit very well. Now, I mentioned Obama was in this game uh, <laughs> because McCain and Obama basically appeared. Their big debate went on an acid trip in our game because I really wanted to do I was, I was thinking, okay, what about what are cool artifacts? And some are in Warehouse 23, but the book. But I could, you know, think of any kind of these strange artifacts. And uh, one of them was the the bike. The acid bicycle. The acid bicycle from Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, where <laughs> Mr. Nobody of the Brotherhood of Dada jumps on this bike. It was the bike that the guy who invented LSD rode while he was on his first trip. And somehow it imbued the bike with power. And everywhere Mr. Nobody went, everybody was having, you know, was tripping balls, basically. And so this bike, I wanted it in the game, obviously. And um, I, we tied it into the U.S. presidential campaign. That is the one thing I remember vividly about this campaign is we were on a bus in the desert. And my character is, like, afraid of bugs. And when the bike went by, I started hallucinating that there were bugs everywhere. And when I came to, I was actually fighting uh, a bunch of cacti. I was covered <laughs> with cacti. And I was just fighting them off. That's the one thing I remember d distinctly about this campaign, this this session. And then uh, basically the the campaign, or I, we say campaign, it was specifically a mini series. It was meant to be a few short sessions, but mm -hmm. it ends on like more or less a two parter, more or less based on the Philadelphia experiment with the aircraft carrier being sucked into another dimension via the Bermuda Triangle, gray aliens. It, you know, everything about Agent uh, Jet and his heritage was coming to a head. And uh, we tried to, to end it on, on, like, on a big set piece, basically. Essentially, it was all of this conspiracy stuff, you know, the, all of this, uh, uh, a mix of everything that's sort of supernatural, sort of scientific, sort of linked to aliens, sort of, if I'd done a second season of this... I might have leaned more into the supernatural stuff, you know, the the Spear of Longinus and the, the Holy Grail, mm -hmm. and maybe play with those elements that need to be brought back to the warehouse or something. Uh, but this one was more, it was more X-Files. It was more like cryptozoology, and there wasn't a whole lot of artifact retrieval when you comes down to it. No, it was essentially, you know, they're among us, and we don't know much about them, but we know some things. And also... What if they had guns? <laughs> what if Cthulhu had a gun? What if everyone had a gun? I remember, however, that you did bring back like a, a kind of a kind of tongue-in-cheek version of Warehouse 23 in one of our games of Doctor Who when we went to Woodstock and these agents in black suits came in and and took away the uh, the weird thing that was happening. I remember that. They made a cameo appear. Was it? Did I really reference it? Or Yeah, it was a reference to Warehouse, because it was... Um, I think there was a young Agent Dice in there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. I'd have to check the notes that I maybe have on, on that campaign. Interesting. I, <laughs> I, I, I forgot more than I remember, and yeah. um, it, it's fun to think that I did that. Like many of these 
games that we this is the third episode is it fourth this is the fourth episode and often made mention of little doing little bonus extras and that kind of stuff in this case there was a website an odd one <laughs> i don't even know if you used it because what i did was you know basically there were like pics of some of the like monster entries or gadget entries or whatever from the book Put on the website, but with redacted. Yeah, redacted lines. But you could only get to that page if you knew the code that you had to put in the URL in the URL because it was also secret, you know. And it, it, there was even like on the on the website, there's like a countdown that goes it goes five, four, three. I had like this GIF going down this, this JavaScript or whatever it is. And I think it's a GIF, but it goes down five to zero as if. Something's going to happen if you don't leave the website, you know, that kind of stuff. Did you use it? Because I I laid in a lot of clues as to what would happen later. I think you sent us that link before every session in a kind of like a for your eyes file to get us ready for what was going to happen in the session. I think every... This, this message will self-destruct in five seconds type thing. Yeah. So d- did you use it? Do you remember? Every yeah, single yeah, session. Yeah, I, I remember I reading would... it every session yeah yeah same here it was just it was both a teaser and a clue for the session mm-hmm. which was really neat uh because is... it gave us the theme but also would give us a clue as to how this may be solved or something along those lines and sometimes it was just a clue as to what type of enemies we would be facing or, or whatever but I it think, was just a nice is... little entry into you guys are secret agents and this is how secret agents communicate. But I think it's also like, uh, because before this group played this, we played Dream Park. And before every session of Dream Park, you'd send us a little like teaser intro to what we'd get into so we could we could prepare our skill sets for Dream Park. And I think that's something that was carried over from that. Already used to that kind of stuff. I think mm. it was particularly useful for the cold opens because we don't get into the story, but there's going to be like werewolves. So th- there yeah. was an entry on werewolves. And so you could use whatever you read there to fuel your your descriptions. You know, you'd know how they, they could be defeated or you could invent how they, were, they could be defeated or whatever in the cold open without it having been attached to an actual adventure to begin with. Mm-hmm. And I also did music and you might have heard already some cues during the episode here, depending on how I edit this thing. <laughs> but I uh, just like uh, I did for GURPS Old West, there's a soundtrack to this. The show notes on fireandwaterpodcast.com will include not only what the tracks are and what they were used for, but a link to a YouTube playlist where you can listen to all of them. And you know what? I haven't done a lot of that recently, I don't think. And the reason is online, it's a little harder to have the music play and that kind of stuff. But back then, that was a big part of the added value I wanted to bring. This is a carryover from GURP Shift World, which we talked about in episode two. And it's the idea that the players then get a record. And on the record is all the music that they've been hearing for the past, in this case, six weeks. I still have that scene. You do? Yeah. Because oh, yeah. everybody yeah. had their own theme and there were themes for chases and fights and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And some monsters had their own themes. But each of you guys had their own themes. Yeah, I remember listening to... Uh... The, the Sopranos theme song, because that was my theme for Agent Orange, to kind of psych myself up to go play Warehouse 23. Uh, what did you have, um, Tesla? I had mm-hmm. uh, Monster by The Automatic. Right. You know, and he, there were some clues in there to who at least I thought you were. <laughs> 
I yeah. realize that in choosing a song for someone, you sort of are subtly uh, there's something um, subliminal that yeah. you're sort of inputting stuff into the player's head because you've chosen their soundtrack. DM is a gray confirmed. <laughs> He's using us, Agent Or. I don't know if it actually plays. I wish I, you know, I I wish I had like more substantial evidence of this. But does the theme song actually affect how a person plays their character? And then should they actually be choosing what they're? I don't know about in the moment because technically the theme song came after all of our character generations. But yes, I mean you obviously, yeah. Ten, twelve years later, if I think of my character that song is the first thing that comes to mind. Same. So it's like, whether or not that's how I played him at the time, today, he is that guy from the automatic song. <laughs> okay. I think I think it's a good thing that the player doesn't choose this theme, the theme song, just because that's your way as a GM to kind of indicate how all our players could mesh together, right? So like you're, you're kind of hinting us and guiding us towards the part you want our character to play in this in this uh, miniseries. So I think that's a good thing. That could be it. And I'll, I wouldn't mind if somebody suggested a theme song. You know? And I mean, you were there for the character generation and we the discussions that we had about who we thought our character was. So you do have a good grasp on who they are. Yeah. There was no question of like subverting what the player wanted to do. And I yeah. may have, okay, this is the song I have, I'm thinking for you. And then the player might have had a veto on it. I don't remember what the, the process was. But I think also there's there's fewer stakes. We're just doing six episodes. We never mm-hmm. played again, although we had discussed it as being maybe an annual thing. It didn't mm-hmm. quite happen. You know, when, when the stakes are just, okay, in six weeks it's going to be done, players are going, oh, I don't care what my theme song is going to be. Yeah, I'm just going to enjoy the ride. Speaking of enjoying the ride... That soundtrack, I don't know how or why, but I went through it before this episode, and some of these songs I hadn't heard since we played them, essentially, yet so many memories came flooding back for some of them specifically. Especially the non-attached-to-an-episode ones, so the ones we'd hear over and over, like the action theme, the opening, the four players' different themes, that kind of stuff. It's like, I hadn't heard them since we played, but the second that song came on, I could tell you each note that was going to come up. Real neat. I think it really sticks to you a bit more that way. I want to talk about lessons that we learned playing this. I'll throw one in on my side of things, and it's that if you're playing GURPS, you are, and you're buying a lot of GURPS books, or you own a lot of GURPS books already, the holy grail for you is, how do I connect all of these? And I gotta say, there are many GURPS books that are already connected. That's to say, there is a house style, in a way. Like, they've got a lot of horror and conspiracy books, is the thing. And that makes sense, because Steve Jackson Games had Kenneth Height on staff, who wrote a lot of even non-gaming books for them, which were all, like, conspiracy nuts things. And then they also produced Illuminati, the New World Order card game. So that was really their brand, you know, in a way. Black Ops and Warehouse 23 were my main texts, but I could have pulled from GURPS Illuminati, Places of Mystery, Creatures of the Night, Blood Types. There are two different editions of horror, uh, Cabal, Atomic Horror, Voodoo the Shadow War. There are Magic Items books, there are like three of them. Monsters, Spirits, Undead, Y2K, I think would have fit. Psionics, Martial Arts, High Tech, there are two Ultra Tech books. 
even Steam Tech, uh, Weird War 2. There are probably others that I'm, I'm not thinking of right now. But all of these books are like splat books and they, they discuss conspiracies and monsters and cryptozoology and weird tech. All of that can be brought into, I think, whether that's Black Ops as your main thing, whether that's a horror campaign in which you bring a lot of these monster books and strange places, whether it's Cliffhangers, which is a Indiana Jones, basically, which is like a pulp adventure. There are many ways to bring a lot of these books together and make them work, pick and choose from these different things. That's the way we did it. There are many other ways, I'm sure. So if you're going to invest in GURPS or have a lot of GURPS books, try to think of you know what books actually fit together this way. And it's funny that you... You know, threw back at me that in Doctor Who, I, you know, brought back the Warehouse 23 guys. That was the adventure where I pulled a monster from GURPS Creatures of the Night. So, <laughs> so I guess the link was yeah. there. It was like something that maybe I could have used in GURPS mm -hmm. instead. So that was my, one of my big takeaways, but I want to let you have your say. One for me is um, that sometimes the narrative is the challenge, not the combat or the puzzles when you know the four characters on this team could essentially solve most challenges and i don't even recall really a fight where we struggled per se what we really struggled with was building like a coherent and cohesive kind of cinematic feel to it all together and i think that was the main challenge of this campaign and that's what made it fine my big takeaway from this and it's something that now i use when i gm games is the idea of the player as a storyteller and especially with the cinematic points where we could use cinematic points to add set pieces or to add characters or to add like we could use cinematic points to kind of become the gm for one scene or for one instant and that to me was super cool and uh it, it allowed us to to contribute more to the story, I feel, than if we were just, you know, rolling dice and killing bad guys. What's the point of watching Warehouse 13 when we already wrote Warehouse 23? <laughs> <laughs> I still enjoyed the show. Uh, but, um, <laughs> yeah, the one last thing I would say is the the whole format of a miniseries, which was at the time, mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, I've done seasons since then. Either we picked up the game again or didn't. The, uh, the idea was to always have it as a short burst with a beginning and an end to that very short one at six episodes, to me became sort of the format going forward. Yeah. You know, it's like open-ended is dangerous. And in fact, we're in the middle of a, you know, we've abandoned games in the middle of them. And it's like, oh, so often. And how, how often is it like that a group will just, or a role-playing group will just fall apart because scheduling issues or, or uh, like in the long run? But if you plan for like eight sessions... Everybody can say, okay, yeah, I can do eight Saturdays. Eight is even stretching it in a way, but six, six yeah. was a no-brainer. Four would be very easy mm -hmm. to organize. And if summers are more free compared to winters, well, then that is about four to six weeks, you know, once you once yeah. you got, okay, you're my family vacation and this and that. If you say, oh, four to six during the summer everybody's on board and you have like few problems. So that really did become my structure from then on. Like like Sharif was on here on episode one talking about Evernight. That was a short run, beginning, middle and end, you know, uh, and that came after. So a lot of... Well, even Doctor Who, like Doctor Who, we had longer seasons, but it was still like beginning, middle, yeah, end. It still felt like 
like you had a whole season and it ended with the big finale. You still get closure at the end of it, which is always great for both players and GMs. Exactly. So if we met a podcast here, technically this podcast season's story arc is how seasons <laughs> are a good thing to incorporate into your game sessions. And your podcast. Yes. Any last thoughts before uh, we go? When are we playing again? <laughs> Damn it, guys. I can't keep resurrecting games. I know. But it would work as a one-off. You know, it's the kind of thing that would work as it a one-off. It would definitely work as yeah. So that was Warehouse 23, powered by GURPS Black Ops. I want to thank my guests, Agent Orange and Tesla, or Fred Melanson and Mathieu Chalifou, for touring the warehouse with me. They're out there. I want to believe. And I'll be back after the break with Game Master advice and your feedback on our previous episode. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Gimme That Star Trek. A new episode every month only at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes. Dungeon Master, I'd have it made. What an interesting proposition. Very well, I shall give you all my power to use as you will. So you just heard me talk about playing diceless, essentially. Are diceless moments heresy in an otherwise dicey universe? Well, one of the things that was the most pleasurable about that short cinematic GURPS Black Ops campaign was the concept of the Diceless Teaser because the game was about these action movie badasses. So we start each episode at the end of the previous Unseen Mission and something like the teasers in James Bond within the parameters of their character sheets, like a guy couldn't suddenly fire bolts from their eyes, for example, the players simply responded to the situations as narrated by the Game Master, going for big and spectacular and not having to worry about rolling for it. Such spectacular effects would normally have generated massive modifiers, but we made as if they already rolled a critical success, basically. They could also fail on purpose to make the situation more dramatic and, uh, you know, cutting the successes closer. No XP, no experience points, uh, were ever handed out for this, but uh, I did hand out cinematic points or hero points or karma or story points or bennies or whatever your game is uh, that they could use in the full scenario that followed. So there could be a reward for the teaser. And the teaser scheme has a variety of effects. First, the players got into describing actions in a more exciting way, and that reduces the boring I shoot him stuff that you sometimes get. And the players got into the spirit of the game much more quickly, uh, and they carry out that tone into the whole of the game. Because there were no ruling issues, these encounters really don't take very long, and yet they're quite memorable, as you heard. And you can also use it to set up any subsequent challenges and opponents as more epic, because they suddenly they have a greater chance of failure compared to the, to the teaser. And finally, and this is very system-specific, it served as a smooth cinematic points engine so that I could give those rewards. That's going to vary from game to game. Now, some time ago, I was reading a post at the DungeonsMaster.com site about um, calling the fight. 
That's what it was called. And it made me realize that a similar diceless moment can come in handy at other times, not just the teaser. What Amaron was saying on that blog was that the last rounds of a fight are often just a war of attrition. The PCs have already won, but have to go through the motions of rolling dice until the monster's hit points drop below zero. In such situations, he recommends you call the fight and end it there, especially at higher levels where dropping the enemy may well take 10 more rounds. Now, his article is very much D&D-centric, but he makes a good point. A GM in any game could conceivably call the fight for the PCs, never do it for the bad guys, of course, and narrate over their victory. With a few extra slashes, you cut down your enemies and they now lie at your feet. What's next? What I propose, however, is to marry this idea to the one before. Like, don't narrate the PC's victory, but allow them to do so. And this has a few results I like. First, you don't rob the players of the joy of victory. In fact, you heighten it by allowing them to create a finish him moment all their own. And then it also allows players to get the result they want from their success. If they want to capture a foe, they can. There's no more... Oops, sorry, I did you too much damage, should have pulled my punch, he's dead. If they want to let a goon get away so he can sow fear into the, his organization, they can. If they want to knock out rather than kill, they can. There's no crunchy rules required for this. Third, it saves time. This isn't really for your climax, but all the intervening fights keeping you from getting to that climax. You want to get through those as efficiently as possible. And then fourth... Everything I said about the teaser holds true here. It will create this epic legend in their minds, and it will be memorable, and it will be quick. So let them strategize, let them get their noses bloody, and let them surge back. But when it's clear they're going to succeed, reward them with a cool moment. You did so well, you get to do whatever you like. Dicelessness. It's not just for Amber anymore. <laughs> Does anyone even remember that game? Okay. At the time of recording, there is one comment on the previous episode, which was about the game Dream Park, with my guest, Daniel Poutouellet. And Brian Linton left us this, this message. Let me read it entire. He says, thank you for uh, your introduction to Dream Park. This is an RPG that I hadn't heard of before today. I like the concept, particularly the meta aspects of it. Players role-playing as players and the GM as an NPC. Now that I think of it, I bet you could modify Dream Park to make a decent Hunger Games RPG. The two certainly seem to share similar DNA. Uh, and I'd say yes to that, Brian. Another film slash show that is a lot like that is uh, Westworld. So Westworld is also a theme park with robots and adventure. Uh, and then, okay, let's, let's go back to Brian's comment. He says, wait, you're recommending that all adventures don't have to start in a tavern? Well, I guess that's okay as long as I still have an opportunity to use my plus one flagon of guzzling at some point in the adventure. Yeah, you can enter a tavern anytime. Uh, then he says, finally, one thing about this show that I appreciate is that you post actual character sheets in the gallery. And we'll do that here again. He says, having the sheets for reference helps me get a better grasp on the flavor and mechanics of the game you are presenting. It also sparks my imagination regarding what type of character I might play in that game system. 
Well, that's it for me. Uh, the Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page, I remind you, at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And if you like this content and want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. Let me also remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter, where we are, fwpodcast. If you want to catch the show on Spotify, we are part of the FW Presents feed. So, until the next episode, let's roll.